Christmas cakes at work for the farm shop. Baron in Doncaster, by the way, you show some... with the All Fruits Right podcast. How's it going, Adam? Yeah, all good, thanks, Louis. And we also have Greta Francesca Yuri. Hello. In the studio. <laughs> salam. So, welcome. Salam. Salam. <laughs> <laughs> so what does salam mean, Adam? Well, it's a greeting. You know, it can Ethiopian. be, and it, it, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it can be goodbye as well. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just so, like ciao. Yeah. You can use it as a hello and a goodbye. Yeah. And yeah. then tenastalin. Yes, tenastalin which is more of a hello in a very formal way okay. where you're wishing your thanks to the universe or to God for meeting this moment. Yeah. Okay. Mm. And for our listeners, the reason we're having a, a small Ethiopian lesson is because, well, Adam's quarter Ethiopian and Greta is half Ethiopian, yes. correct? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be talking a lot about Ethiopia in this episode. So, Greta, can you... Just introduce yourself a little bit to our audience and let's know who you are. Yes, so thank you for the introduction. As you said, I'm half Ethiopian and half Italian, but I grew up all of my life in Ethiopia and lived in Addis Ababa, the capital. I'm currently working as an independent wildlife consultant, uh, focusing on wildlife crime and sustainable development. And since we're talking about environmental issues today, and this podcast focuses a lot on on that, I'll be talking about a a bit about what I do in Ethiopia and all all across the African continent with regards to the illegal wildlife trade and human wildlife conflict. Awesome. I'm looking forward to digging into that. Thank you. Should we start with our first track then? Yeah, so it's nice. So, the music. First of all, awesome list of tunes you sent me. Thank um, you. I'm glad you like them. One stood out very strongly for me. Which um, one was that? And it's by. Of Mul- course. Mulatu Astatka. Astatka. Yes. Okay. Yeah. He is a legend. What a legend. And as soon as I heard the track, I was like, hang on, I recognize this. But I don't recognize this tune. Yeah. And I, I know it because of what I'm going to play is my choice of record. No way. Yeah, uh, which is interesting. Fantastic. And then I also try and find, for the last track we play at the end, I try yeah. and find something that's a remix or something that's influenced or has influenced and so on and so forth. A little bit different to how we've done some of them. But I found something with this track Great. Took quite a lot of hunting. I can imagine. It sent over to me from America. Wow. Uh, That's exciting. Which is ironic because I was in America when I found it. And then as I got through my front door yesterday, there it was sat there waiting for me. I was like, yes. We came back together. That's (laughs) great. We we arrived at the same time. (laughs) Just in time for today. Just in time. So yeah, the track's called 
Emnete? Emnete. Emnete. Yes. What does that mean? Do you it's like my belief. My belief. Okay. Yes. Yeah, I'm very excited to play this. Ethiopian jazz. Amazing, amazing music. Yeah, I'm glad you chose something from Mulatu. Oh, yeah. I, I grew up listening to Mulatu. I'm very lucky to know him personally. Oh, and wow. Yes. Wow. And he's just honestly a legend and has put on put Ethiopian jazz on the international map and I just I'm so proud of what he's done for the sound mm, 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 mm. how do you know him personally so he's good friends with my mother and my right. father so growing up we would listen to Mulatu all the time yeah, but right. then we would go to his concerts when he was just starting and then I followed him you know he sees me like a little daughter you know but wow. then when he plays in London or when he plays wherever I am you know I just can contact and, and get it to go see him and introduce his music to people that I'm mingling with and it's always the same reaction it's yeah. amazement and just yeah. pure obsession with the sound so, yeah. yeah oh it's beautiful beautiful music it's amazing yeah I saw him when he came to the roundhouse uh, last year yeah yeah, I wasn't nice around, gig. but I w yes, I did see that that he was yeah. on the European tour of the new album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And obviously, he's renowned for that Nas sample. Yes. Which is Damien Mo. Yeah. Okay. 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 There we go. Spoilt it ads. <laughs> well, no, I mean you know. It's like yeah, famous. Yeah, yeah. It's true. Not yeah, all the no, listeners might not. Well, they would have found out later. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. You're just an educated no, okay. music buff. It's Absolutely. Fine. <laughs> I should just be quiet, really, and just. No, say no, 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 no. I don't want you to ever be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get into some music. I should just tell you what I'm going to play. <laughs> I kind of like that you don't. So I get a little. All Surprise. right, so here we go. <laughs> Thank you. 
such an amazing track. I'm so glad you like it. Love it, love it, love it. Yeah, I've got a couple of Malati records as well. And, yeah. uh, it's, it's always nice. It's a must nice. as an Ethiopian, I think. We have yeah. to. <laughs> <laughs> you, have, you have to own You have to own it. <laughs> you have to own some vinyl from Malati. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's nice to hear it on the sound system as well. Absolutely. So, first of all then, can you tell us a bit about um, how did you get into... Well, no, tell us exactly what it is that you're doing because you were talking about you're dealing a lot with conservation of animals predominantly in Africa mm -hmm. and dealing with ivory and then that's also got like the interrelation with the humans and how humans and animals live with each other yeah. which is interesting it's something we discussed in a few in a past podcast with Bex wasn't it mm. so yeah can like tell us a bit about how you found yourself in this world okay so the way I found myself in this world is I started working at a national park in northern Ethiopia called the Simeon Mountains National Park. That was my first job after I graduated uh, from my bachelor, which I did in, ac in sustainable tourism and nature conservation. Where did you do that? In Ethiopia. Oh, the bachelor? In yeah. the Netherlands. Okay. In Breda University in okay. the Netherlands. And it was always my dream to work in a national park because I was always fascinated with the natural spaces that I grew up visiting and I always was very passionate about preserving them for future generations and I knew growing up that there was very little focus being placed by my government on how to develop them sustainably um, taking into consideration that populations were growing tourism was growing industrialization was growing development was the priority and that was it so my fear was always we're going to lose all of these incredible natural spaces in my country um, so having worked there with the Simeon Lodge which was the only accommodation um, entity within the national park I got to see firsthand over two years and a half all the issues that are faced in a natural protected area whether it was from local communities whether it was from tourists or the leaders and the regional leaders the governance the federal um, units that wanted to implement laws and regulations but without knowing what was actually happening on the ground so this inspired me to want to further understand these specific relationships when it comes to natural spaces which I then went on to do a master's here in London at King's College that's where we first met right yes when, you were when I was studying yeah, yeah. And that was when I really kind of delved into the world of illegal wildlife trade because I realized that one, it was something that was very predominant in that time. It, it really started taking international news. People knew more about it and it was just becoming a very important topic of discussion at the international level and no longer something that people overlooked. So I thought, well, this is interesting because it is still a contestation between stakeholders. So illegal buyers, illegal sellers, but also local people and the wildlife that that is being traded. So I went and, and, and conducted a study in South Africa, which was facing and still is facing a massive crisis with regards to rhino poaching. And I had never seen a rhino in my life because we don't have rhinos in Ethiopia. So I was very fascinated by this dinosaur-like creature mm. that we were on the verge of exterminating. And that's where I really started to understand that it was far more complex than I had imagined that wildlife crime was not as simple as some people were looking at it where it was just there's a buyer that likes a certain product there's people willing to kill an animal and then there's traders trading this product it was far more deep-rooted in social cultures in economic structures in history and all of a sudden there was this animal but there, it was connected to far greater problems of of our planet and 
I was lucky enough to conduct this study when very few people were focusing on that specific aspect. And that led me to realize I couldn't just work in a nine to five job because I had this information that I didn't want to be buried and never used. I wanted to to be able to share it with organizations to make a change or to at least think differently about the issues that they were trying to tackle in a kind of out of the box manner. So I established my own consultancy. So I'm a sole trader. I work on my own as an independent consultant. And at the same time, there was a project with the United Nations uh, Drugs and Crime Office that was focusing on wildlife trafficking and the container control program. So how containers and cargo were you know, transporting masses and huge amounts of illegal wildlife product undetected from one area of the planet to another right. and these structures. So I got onto that consultancy and I'm still working for them. And then I also got into a, a consultancy which focused more on the le legal and criminal justice pathway within countries. So what happens when you do find a poacher, when you do incarcerate someone that you know has committed a crime and what are the processes that we have to lead in order to make sure that this person serves justice? Because if you think about it, without a strong law structure or legal structure, it is very easy for these people to fall through the traps or to bribe someone and get out on bail. Mm -hmm. And if there isn't um, upholding of legal structures, nothing can work, regardless of if you know exactly who's doing it. If you can't prove they're doing it and, and hold them accountable to it, it became very difficult. So those are the two aspects that I'm working on profoundly um, over the last two years. And then I have my own projects which focus on Ethiopia as a country entirely in helping them establish now their National Elephant Action Plan. And because we have a very small population of elephants and they're very willing at the moment to try and up the numbers considering that the entire elephant population is dwindling. Well, I want to get into the, the, the Ethiopian story maybe after another track, but before we go there, um, mm -hmm. I seem to remember you mentioning before that one of the excavations you did was to go and understand on the ground, like mm -hmm. why people are allowing ivory to be taken from elephants or rhinos, and so the poachers essentially. Yeah, yeah. I seem to remember you telling me a story where you've met poachers. Yeah. Can you share with our audience how that feels and like the emotions you went through? And Absolutely. You know, when I first knew that I had gotten the kind of the okay, the green light from this these villages in South Africa, to meet with poachers. Whereabouts in South Africa? It was on the it was on the outskirts of Kruger, okay. and it was in the Balule region, okay. Balule National Reserve. It's a private reserve. But then I I talked to people all over that area. Mm -hmm. So these poachers didn't essentially only poach in that area. They and how did you start that conversation? How does one go out and find a poacher? So I had intelligence with regards to who would have good networks within their villages and they were trustworthy people right. and after establishing relationships with them and you know kind of establishing a trust that no matter what was said and identities that were revealed nothing would be put on record essentially right. so their names and their identities would never be revealed right. and that of course takes time you have to prove yourself as an individual they would want to make sure you don't work for governments or for the police and I think when you come from a genuine place where you're trying to find a solution, mm -hmm. even the evil man, even the bad person can appreciate that it might help him to just tell you the truth and right. trust you and take a risk. Okay. Um, and yes, I never, of course, I never compromise that and I never will because that is how you find solutions is by talking to people that might be in a position of, of, of crime at the moment, but I can identify that 
they're not essentially the entire problem and therefore right. their information to me is more valuable at the okay. moment yeah so when I got that green light, I was very nervous, actually, because I didn't know how I would personally feel. Mm. If I would feel hatred, considering I love, on a personal level, I absolutely love wildlife. And I've seen wildlife that has been poached, and it is the most heartbreaking thing that you can witness. It's something that I often dream about, and it's kind of the thing that I go back to every time I want to give up, is you can't, because, you know, that's going to keep going, mm. happening. But when I met them, I realized they're fundamentally... A lot of them, of course, they'll be, this is just the people that I met in my personal experience. But a lot of them are just regular people that have been forced into a life that they'd rather not be doing. But due to the circumstances of their livelihoods, whether it be poverty or insecurity or instability of the area, or genuinely the bad decisions they've made in their lives, they can't get out of this cycle. It was it a big, big eye opener for me to realize that we can't focus on just the very end of the chain, if we're going to bring about change, you have to look at the entire supply chain from the very bottom to the very top. And very often, all the, the levels at the bottom are being forced to be there. They would much rather be doing something legal with a sustainable income and not breaking the law and not risking their own lives. A lot of these poachers die in the cause of trying to get um, illegal products. After all, they have to track these massive mammals that are also incredibly dangerous. They can get killed by snakes. They can get bitten by other things, disease. So they would much rather be doing something else. And the truth is a lot of them don't make anything compa financially compared to what right. it's being sold on the black market. How much market. Do, do, they, do, do they make on... So I did ask, and it was always dependent on the client or who, who was targeting them to go. But... As little as a hundred dollars to five hundred dollars, really? not you know, something that could risk their lives, and of course, if they get caught, get them incarcerated for life, for nothing, for peanuts, for something that you would never and even. And they think. sell them millions, right? I mean, yeah, the black, the rhino horn on the black market goes up as high as seventy thousand a kilo, U.S. dollars. So, and one fully grown rhino horn will be four to five kilos. Yeah. So you can imagine that. These guys don't even know that right. and how they would feel if they knew that they were risking their lives for a hundred dollars when someone, what they're trying to get someone yeah. is going to make 70 to 80,000, 100,000, 1.5 million, depending on what they're selling. And, and it's just mind blowing, you know? Did you tell them that? I did. And, and what, what was their reaction? I mean, they, there's just a sense of disappointment in themselves, you know, in their lives. And a lot of them were saying, you know, tomorrow you give me a job, you take me out of here, you provide food and, and a livelihood for me and my family, I'll never do it again. I'll never go. But they said, but unfortunately, life is not that simple. And they're aware of that, that not one person can change the reality on the ground. There's always going to be someone willing to poach. You know, even if you kill 100, there'll be 100 for each poacher you've killed that is willing to do it. Of course. Yeah. And that's where the dynamic is. We can't be dealing at the bottom level. We have to be dealing at the very top. So the syndicates, the people that are financing that sale at the top that have, have said, well, I have this much money. You bring me that horn or you bring me that ivory despite anything that comes in your way because mm. he doesn't care who does it as long as it's on his desk or her desk in a month's time. They don't even know how, what happens on the ground. Who do you think is that top syndicate? I mean, usually it's, it, it varies. It's very difficult. There's government officials involved. There's buyers, buyers and sellers that have been in it for, for decades. Uh, there's personal interest people that know that 
opportunists so they're they're getting into the trade because it just makes good money and it, it's a status symbol it's a power symbol and what we've seen with regards to my research is that a lot of people that do illegal wildlife crimes they also per, they're also involved in other crimes it's not just wildlife right. they'll be trading in other crime illegal products whether it's drugs or weapons or humans so it you know if they're risking their entire being to get into wildlife crime, they're also doing it with other, other things because they're right. establishing very strong networks that allow them to get illicit products across transnational borders without a problem. Right. And how are, the, how are they transported? Is it by air or by boat it, or is it both? It's both. So I think personally, I, I, I believe that predominantly a lot of the illegal products in the world um, are transported via cargo and ships, right. so ports, yeah. because just because of the nature of how difficult it is to survey boats and ships and cargo fleet, you can't right. go. I think it's, I don't know the exact figure, but I think something like 90% of cargo goes unchecked when it comes into port. Wow. Just because you don't have the man capacity to go through it all if you wanted to get your product by tomorrow or in a week's time, right. then if everything was getting checked, you would not even get your products or your contents, legal products within months and years, you know, if it all yeah. had to go through checking. So checking is very randomized. It's based on intelligence of where it usually illegal things come from. But traffickers are much smarter than that. They've now studied those routes and they don't take them. So right. they traffic on routes that you'd never imagine things to come from. Right. So then they just go undetected. And of course, along the entire supply chain, there will be people that are involved. There are yeah. people that are bought out through corruption, through bribery, through blackmail. Um, so it's very, very complicated. And right. that's why essentially we still haven't found a solution. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's intense, isn't it, Adam? Really intense. Yeah. yeah. Should it we break it with a track? Yes. Yeah. So we can think about it all for a minute. Exactly. <laughs> Let's try and find a solution in these three minutes. Okay. Um, <laughs> wow. Do you want to go first? Yeah, I don't, I don't usually go first. Yeah, do, do you want to? Yeah, why not? Let's do it. Well, I thought it probably makes sense to play another track off the record label. So it's a track, another Only Joe track, which was our sixth release. Only Joe is still going. It's a, At the time, it was a 10-piece reggae band, and I did all the engineering and production on this release the version i'm gonna play i'm not gonna play the original i'm gonna play the dub chasm remix which were a bristol dub outfit the track is called play with fire so it's kind of relevant to what we're talking about wow. the play with fire and you're gonna get burnt is the main chorus lyric so yeah it's it's kind of mostly instrumental so yeah, anyway, let's have a listen Great. and hope you enjoy it.
mellow moods that adds. That was really nice. Yes. Yeah, thanks. Wicked. Such yeah. a good tune. Thank you. So, yeah, I'd, I'd, we were just talking about while the track was playing, just solutions that are working and that you are practicing in Ethiopia. We, we were talking about the elephants and the local communities that have to deal yeah, with the humans who have to deal with the elephants and the elephants who have mm -hmm. to deal, uh, deal with the humans. Yeah. So, yeah, it'd be interesting to hear and let, let our listeners know about those those Abs positives. Really. Absolutely. So it's a tough industry that I work in and a lot of the people that are close to me always, after a night out with me or if we start talking about this, they're like, how do you do it? It's so depressing when it seems like such a struggle to find solutions because it's much bigger than an individual or a country or a, a corporation. It's, it's really a global issue that we need to come together and find um, what works as well as commit to wanting to find something that works. And personally, what I found has kept me going is that I really believe in the importance of bringing together local communities that are personally everyday dealing with human wildlife conflict as well as the illegal wildlife trade because you have to understand that some of these areas are genuinely facing a wildlife war you know uh, poachers are doing jobs they don't want to but they can also die in the in the in the attempt to getting these these products and then families are left without a uh, an income generator women are left without anything with regards to make it feeding their children because the, their only father their only husband was the one bringing money and even through the legal trade but it creates these voids and these is these issues that further makes everything more complicated mm -hmm. so when i realized that if we brought together the knowledge of local communities and the importance of local communities to find a solution so it is not in my power as someone that doesn't live every day in this village to tell you them what to do. It is very fundamental that it is a conversation that I can learn from them what they think the solutions are. Mm -hmm. And I found in my experiences that this has brought at least progressive discussions on ways that we can move forward that won't impact negatively the elephant or the lion or the wildlife populations and potentially also develop the livelihoods of the local community. So there's a win-win opportunity there. What I was saying when we were listening to the track is that Wildlife and natural spaces have to be valued by the people that are living side by side by them. Of course, people like us who love wildlife, who love nature, we appreciate the value because we've been taught about it. We learned the importance of it. We are privileged enough to go to wild spaces just to gain peace and quiet and we don't depend on them for our livelihood. Mm -hmm. We make a livelihood in a different way. But people that live on this land and depend on it for its lively for their livelihood and especially to provide livelihood for further people, usually five to ten other people, have a much more stressful relationship with nature. And when there's laws and regulations telling them it's illegal for you to go into the national park because these foreigners have to enjoy this wildlife and mm -hmm. therefore they don't want to see you in there. But this person for centuries was eating from this land and now he's got to make money or food from a different way. So this is where it gets complicated. We have to devise structures that allow for local communities to see value. The only way they're going to do that is if they make an income directly, either from the natural area, so through national park fees and through management of the park or through tourist fees, such as training and educating locals to become the guides and the, and the protectors of their land. Mm. And this has worked really well in countries like South Africa, Botswana, Kenya, that have had a lot more funding. Ethiopia yeah. is still a very newbie in this world. The, it's interesting that you touch on, um, you know, the, the tourism and the yes. whole national parks and, and the locals who live on this land and that is their ancestral land. Absolutely. Because 
in my readings, I've seen that Ethiopia is having a massive push over the last 10 years in tourism and yes. trying to get, you know, people to come and visit the country. Exactly. However, they're not really thinking about the people who are living on this land and Absolutely. not treating them in the way that they should be. No. And I imagine that's a massive struggle because then you get the locals who are really against tourism. That's it. And that's the last thing you want. Yeah, you don't want them to be against something that will bring about positive change because, you know, yeah. ignorance is bliss because when you don't know what, how you're harming something, at the end of the day, it will be the locals that are going to lose out over the long term. If tourism doesn't develop, if tourists are afraid of coming to Ethiopia yeah, because of well. clashes, then the money, that the opportunity of money that could be made by the country will be lost on mm -hmm. because tourists, you know, it's a... Tourism is a very volatile industry. As soon as something goes wrong, they're not going to come. They're going to go somewhere else because the world is a big place. Mm -hmm. And especially when it comes to wild spaces, there's so many that they can go to. Even our neighbors, Kenya, Tanzania, South Africa, Botswana. Yeah, yeah. So this is where we have to focus on raising awareness, educating, creating structures where local communities make an income from the land that they're giving up to preserve for conservation. And I really believe that in the future, one of the, the my priority will be working together with the Ministry of Education because I, th I think that when you educate people on the importance of anything, mm. the knowledge, knowledge is power. And when they realize that preserving these spaces will be something that will benefit them on the long run, not just them, their kids and their children, then they will be more willing to find alternatives to their lives. Well, yeah, and you, you I agree with you 100%. And... I think it's imperative that this happens. Absolutely. And I'd love to see if I can get involved somehow and try oh, and help please, because yes. that that's very important. You know, you talk because it touches on other things that we've talked about in previous podcasts, you know, ancestral knowledge. Absolutely. You know, like these people know things that might not necessarily be in the national curriculum no. or in, in these books and these books and what you can study. There's There's knowledge there that is of utmost importance Absolutely. that needs to get passed to generation to generation to generation. Exactly. Because it is linked with nature and it is linked with the world that we live in. You know, unfortunately, the powers that be don't see that as something that is like richness and positive necessarily no. because it's not uh, money. No, you know? exactly. It's not, it's not gain, capital gain. It's not, Absolutely. you know... And this obsession with capital gain, especially in the national park and nature protection world, is, is, is one of the biggest drivers. I mean, the entire illegal wildlife trade is based on purely financial gain. There is nothing mythical about any of these creatures' body parts. And in national parks, like you said, the ancestral knowledge of local communities, for centuries they lived in peace with these creatures. But then as soon as development came into play, as soon as money could be made in these areas... Then governments and regional leaders started selling off land that is important for these wild spaces, for this wildlife. Local communities would have told you that elephants migrate in this area and therefore you shouldn't build a dam or you shouldn't build a, a sugar plantation because you will have a problem. But of course, who listens to the local communities? They're just seen as irrelevant stakeholders because they think, oh, they don't know the, the positive gain we can gain from the money aspect mm. of this. We have but, to do this. But where does the money go? Exactly. You know what I mean? Exactly. <laughs> there is money being made. Where is it being spent on? That's afterwards? it. So this is where we need to really yeah. change the paradigm. If it was spent on education, if it was spent on more positive things, then yeah, okay, fair enough. But I think it would be a more of a holistic cycle yes. if it was that. Yes. But it's not. So 
yeah, respect to you. Thank you. How yeah. how does it differentiate from say Ethiopia to Kenya to South Africa to Mozambique, wherever the like? Because I mean, these are the countries where there is big wildlife. But I seem to remember you mentioning that. Ethiopia doesn't have mm. a national park, right? No, it has lots of national parks. So what is it that it's missing that the other countries have? So we don't have the classical wildlife safari structure. Right, that's because, what I meant. Yeah, because yeah, we lost a lot of our wildlife. We, Ethiopia used to be very rich in wildlife. But due to our history, because of you know our, the dynasties that were ruling and because of the importance of Ethiopia as one of the biggest traders out of Africa with mm. international powers... We traded a lot of our products. So ivory was a, 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 a commodity up until 1989. Right. A lot of the products in your family's houses will, be, have, will have been made of ivory. Chopsticks, piano keys, um, trinkets, pipes. It was a very common thing to make products from ivory, for example. Mm. And uh, if you remember, if you've seen vintage photos coming out of Africa wearing leopard skin and lion mm. skins and, and giving these as gifts to international royalties was very common. Right. So animals and wildlife was always seen as a commodity until all of a sudden the demand for it became much greater than the ability of the wildlife to reproduce. So then that's when it, they started becoming endangered. We were wiping out entire populations of wildlife because we were just over, over poaching them. And Ethiopia is one of the biggest countries when it came to that. And due to the wars and due to the dictatorship, w during that insta instable moment, a lot of the big mammals were poached or they migrated out of the country. And so Kenya and Tanzania and South Africa, due to their colonial history, had always had gaming reserves. So where the colonial history... Uh, people that lived there used to go hunting and therefore they protected those spaces to hunt right. for their own pleasure. So those, they, they, they were smart enough to protect certain species so that they can enjoy them. In Ethiopia, there was no culture like this. Hunting was never a recreational thing for the mm. Ethiopian man. And because we were not colonized, therefore we didn't see the importance of conserving national parks. And mm, This was right. much later. Ethiopia is, is it 90%? farmed a lot of the land a lot is of like, the land is yes yeah when you go to countries like zambia and, and, and other african countries a lot of it is vast wildness yes but well we Ethiopia, have a lot yeah. of farmland because our predominant income comes from agriculture uh -huh. and the coffee plantations yeah, yeah yeah and if which is our national food which makes injera. Yeah, injera, yeah. um and because we just have predominant pastoralist like population considering there's a hundred million of us now you can imagine that 100 million mouths to feed means that all the land must be converted into some sort of farm, food production. Mm. And this is where we, where we have a completely different structure than in the more experienced tourist destinations of Kenya and South Africa, where mm. tourism was a big part of their, of their development strategy already 50, 60 years ago. And where ours has, is just beginning people around the world in the last 20, 30 years have started to know more about Ethiopia, but never for wild spaces. Very few people go for wild spaces. They'll go for the cultural or historic sites, which is where we come. We have a lot of to offer compared to the other countries. Mm. So this is now when the government is realizing, well, look at how much other countries are making from protecting their wildlife and the pride they have in having these national parks and the opportunities for ecotourism and sustainable development and alternative income strategies, for example, if we have to move away from an agricultural 
predominantly dependent nation because of climate change. Mm. We won't be able to farm the entire land because climate is so unpredictable now. Mm-hmm. We've had crop failure for year on year on year on year because the rains don't come, because mm. climate is changing. And this is a very, very imperative and, and pivotal kind of aspect of why the government is realizing the importance of creating an income for local communities that has nothing to do with farming the land, you know. And that's where the National Elephant Action Plan with regards to elephants, but also as an entire biodiversity strategy for the country started shedding light on these issues that we can make an income from protecting species of of animals as well as just natural spaces in the country and generate an income for the country as well as the people. And so that's part of the reason why you're investigating Ethiopia, I guess, is to try and find those dots to join up and thread through that kind of more animal tourism right yeah so because i'm ethiopian i'm very passionate about the country i when i started out on this journey in my independent consulting i always knew that i wanted to start working for my own country of course gaining experience in other countries is vital and seeing the entire global picture was always important but in my heart i was like as an ethiopian it's my duty to go back and help my people and find solutions for my country so i just started thinking of how i could do that Um, without having to give up any of my other work. And I started working with Stop Ivory, which is a UK NGO, as well as Save the Elephants, Elephants, the biggest NGO working with elephant conservation, and kind of just got their attention by saying, well, yes, we only have about 2,000 to 2,500 elephants, but there are still 2,000 to 2,500 elephants that we can rehabilitate, we can bring back entire species to the country. But what I need is your support for technical capacity, financial capacity, and essentially bringing about political interest from the government of the government leaders in my country. So we started working on projects to analyze what are the priority areas we're going to focus on. One of them is human-wildlife conflict because it is a, a problem that is happening right now every single day and that is being overlooked. And if we don't tackle it and find solutions, nothing that we develop long-term will work. So that's what I'm working on now. It's an entire national strategy on how we can stop the illegal wildlife trade. So I'm currently developing a sniffer dog program for Bola International Airport so that we can intercept and detect ivory with a lot higher guaranteed rates than because... Which airport? Bola International in Addis Ababa. Oh, okay. That is the one in Addis Ababa. Yeah, and it is one of the biggest hubs for ivory getting out of Africa I was going to say, Asia. you mentioned to me before that that's mm-hmm. like the epicenter of like... One of the epicenters. Gateholes gate of Africa. For flights, yeah, yeah, so for cargo. Because Ethiopian Airlines is a huge, huge airline. One of the, It's the most successful airline in Africa. It doesn't help that the hub is in Ethiopia. It's very strategically placed. It is the only connecting hub between the West and the Far East. Yeah, a lot of flights. A lot of flights, daily. So one of the biggest things we had to work on and we are working on at the moment is realizing that if we can cut off the illegal wildlife trade from Ethiopia, then we can start working on developing the natural spaces, you know, mm-hmm. making people realize the importance of no poaching. Because poaching, I don't think, is our biggest problem in Ethiopia. In other countries, yes. In Ethiopia, poaching is very opportunistic. It is mainly trading, so getting elephant tusks or a rhino horn or animal products from Kenya, Tanzania, South Africa and getting them through Ethiopian borders and out to the Far East. Right. So is, this is one of the projects I'm working on with the government and Stop Ivory. And the second one is working on site level issues. So community level, generating value, having discussions about what it is exactly that they require with regards to 
you know, infrastructure, helping them, you know, develop programs that they'd like to implement, training of scouts and intelligence officers at national park level, just giving the local community something to look forward to when it comes to their future children. There's so many young adults in these wild spaces that have nothing to do because they've not been educated. Mm. So, of course, poaching syndicates and traffickers, they're vulnerable. They, they tell them, I'm going to give you this money. All you got to do is get it from this point to the border mm. and I'll pay you. And you taste money like that that quickly. You're going to feel proud because you can contribute to your family's income. Your family might not even know that you're doing something illegal right. but because you have nothing to do. Of course you're going to do it. Yeah. So these are all the kind of aspects we're trying to look at now. And hopefully, fingers crossed, we are, you know, we're, we're, we're competing for funding. The biggest issue in wildlife conservation is funding to try and get these projects going, get support locally as well as internationally to start implementing this, these projects. Cool. Yeah. Should we get into another track? Yeah. Let's do it. Music. Uh, <coughs> what we got, Louis? Wow. Drum roll, you've already spoiled it. <laughs> <laughs> We've yes. got Distant Relatives. Oh, uh, the best. Of course, by Damien Marley and uh, Nas. Classic and Produced sample. pretty much by his brother Stephen, if I'm not wrong. Amazing. I'll have to read through it whilst the music's playing. Yeah, but anyway, the track's uh, As We Enter. And what I really love about this track is, well, Nas is someone I listened to as a kid. I listened to Bob Marley as a kid and I was like, wow, I like reggae, I like hip hop. And then along comes Damien and fuses the two together, Amazing. which he does so well. Apparently, he reached out to, um, oh man, I've forgotten his name now, um, the guy from Black Alicious. No, it wasn't, it was Black Thought from The Roots and mm. he reached out to him and he didn't want to do it. Oh, wow. So Nas jumped on it. Jumped on it. And what I'm sure it was the, the Mulatu sample that got him on it. Yeah, <laughs> probably. Well, I mean, that's it. There is that sample in here. It's not the sample of the no. track that you no, spoke no. of. It's a but it's one, a very well-known track. Which yeah. was the one which... Uh, I'm not sure exactly which one it is. I forgot. I did look it up before I left, but now I've forgotten. Which I do so well. I want <laughs> you to get valuable information. Mm. So, yeah, let's spin it. <laughs> As we enter, come the critic upon the biggest adventure. Must be dementia that you ever thought you could touch our credentials. What's the initials? You be jam rock the lyrical official. Send out the order, laws and the rituals. Burn candles, say prayers, paint mirrors. It is truth, we big news, we hood heroes. So as the anchor, we come to bunker. One a bad man, we not play Willy Wonka. And I got the guns, I got the ganja. And we can blaze it up on your block if you wanna. Or haze it up, stash spots in a hummer. Or you can run up and get done up. Or get something that you want none of. Unlimited amount to collect. From us, direct from us, street intellectuals And I'm shrewd about decimals And my man to speak patois And I can speak rap star, y'all feel me Even if it's in Swahili, a body Ghani Missouri sana, switch up the language I move to Ghana Salute and honor, real revolution rhymers Written piranhas, like two Obamas Unfold the drum Word is out, hysteria you heard about Nas and Junior Khan came to turn it out Body the verses till they scream murder out The kings is back, time to return the crown Who want it? Tuck your chain with dude coming Renegades that appeal your back like new hunters, bet your Jews on it You don't wanna lose on it Either move on or move on it Queens to Kingston, gunshot we use and govern the kingdom Rise up the 
Winston I can see the fear up in your eyes, realize you could die in the instant And I can hear the sound of your voice when you must lose your life like moist in the kitchen Snitching, I can see him pissing on himself and he wetting up his thighs and he trying to resist it Switching, I can smell him digging up shit like a fly come around and keep persisting That's how you end up in a hit list In a bad man business, no evidence Rhymes in fingerprintless, slow effortless As well like the weekend, no pressure when We're comfy and decent, set this all beasting Hunting season, and frankly speaking Word is out, hysteria you heard about Nas and Junior Gun came to turn it out Body the verses till I scream murder out The kings is back, time to return the crown Who won it? Tuck your chain with dude coming Renegades that appeal your back like new hunters Bet your jewels on it, you don't wanna lose on it Either move on, or both on it Word is out, hysteria you heard about Nas and Junior Gun came to turn it out Body the verses till I scream murder out The kings is back, time to return the crown Who won it? Tuck your chain with dude coming Renegades that appeal your back like new hunters Bet your jewels on it, you don't wanna lose on it Either move on, or move on And you're listening to none other than All Fruits Ripe. Let's go save the wild. Thanks for that, Louis. Thank you. What a classic. That is not a problem. I just, I will always play Damien Marley at some point somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So I guess something I'm particularly interested in is how do we start to challenge law in, in the environment and nature? Like we talk about, in a few of our podcasts, we've talked about how you change legislation within a company or you Mm. infiltrate like understanding of a company to encourage them to stop using plastics or to stop using microbeads or whatever or animal testing and so on but how do you encourage a government to change their laws like a government is way beyond how a business thinks absolutely it is a that's a very good question and it is it's, it, it goes back to what i said earlier there's got to be a reason why a government well other than the fact that they they, want, they don't want to be caught in, in perpetrating any legal crimes. And so it has to be a global movement that shames and looks and frowns upon this, this incredibly intricate illegal wildlife trade. But, you know, surprisingly, a lot of people don't realize that there's still, if we look at the ivory trade, there is still a legal ivory trade. Right. And this upholds and, and, and goes against everything that we're working towards. I saw ivory in the markets in Shanghai a couple Absolutely. weeks ago. Absolutely. It was yeah. like heartbreaking. And yeah. they were trying to sell me jewelry made of ivory and uh, red coral. And I was like, seriously, guys. Yeah. What so are you doing? With, with, that's the thing. It, if, it's, if, it's a, if it's every country of this, of this planet that comes together and says, literally any country found with ivory or any individual found trafficking ivory that is life in jail you will see a change mm. because then it is a decision that has been taken by the biggest global leaders you know and they are being held accountable they are they are agreeing to 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 accept the terms that the global planet is going to put as the crime sentence you know but the problem is we have countries like the UK there's Europe that at least allows a legal ivory trade as long as it is deemed antique. But how can you deem an ivory piece antique? You'd have to carbon date each and every ivory piece being sold in Notting Hill. And of course, nobody's got the money or the finance to do that. Therefore, it creates a loop. It creates a black hole for the black market. Newly poached ivory is being sold as antique ivory. Of course it is. And that's where where we struggle the most. One of the greatest things that happened just at the end of 2016 was China agreed to ban all ivory. 
in their country. And this year there will be no ivory carving factory that is legally operating in the country. This is huge because yeah. with legal... China seems to be where a lot of the ivory has been going as well, Absolutely, right? yes. So that's a really huge success. It's a huge step in the right direction. Um, so we need to just have a collective and unified idea of how we feel about illegal products. There can't be end if or buts. It has to be a no tolerance policy for every wildlife product. Mm. That is the only way we'll be able to negotiate laws that then uphold that, you know? Um, but if you're going to have every country has their own legislation, which is the way it is currently, right. because every country in the world looks at specific species in different ways. So what's important to one country may not be important to another country. Right. There's a lot of space for confusion. And also, for it, it becomes even more complex when you have foreigners perpetrating the crimes in foreign countries because they then want to be protected by their country. They want to be trialed in their country, which has completely different laws to the country in which they committed the crime. Right, okay. Yeah. So they can get away with loopholes. a lot of things. Yeah, yeah, so many loopholes in law. So that's one of the aspects. And secondly, we have to create value. Value for people at the practitioner's level. So prosecutors, judiciary, you know, the court customs and revenues officers that are the ones identifying illegal products, they have to personally not want the illegal wildlife trade to be taking place. So they can't be bribed. They need to see more value about the conservation of these animals and these products than just the quick buck they make from just accepting it, mm. passing under their nose. Because no matter what the law says, if corruption plays a key part of it, there will always be a black market. There will always be someone willing to undermine the law. So I always say it's almost more effective to just educate people, raise awareness. That's what I do on my daily, you know, conversations or my through my social media is often as tourists, as travelers, as passionate humans, we don't even realize how we perpetrate the crimes by not being conscious of what you buy, mm. by not being conscious of what you're paying for at, in services. That if you're riding an elephant in Thailand just because it looks good in Instagram or in a selfie or in your Insta story, that you are genuinely stopping them ever changing the law with regards to elephants being a commodity for tourism rather than just being wild animals, which is their inherent right, you know? Right. So these are the kinds of things that we can make changes in our communities by just making people think twice. Do you really need a selfie of you on an elephant? Yeah. Do you really have to have that cheetah cub in your hand? Mm. No, you really don't. And you, and further than that, you need to realize that you are a key player in it being upheld as an illegal crime. Right. In the in, in and that's I think how we're going to bring about change slowly, but it'll be more permanent change. Yeah. And so your projects at the moment are centered around Ethiopia, right? Ethiopia and East Africa. And East Africa. Yes. And you're working with the Ivory Trust in Ethiopia at the moment? So the Ethiopian Wildlife Conservation Authority, which is yeah. a, the government body managing all the wildlife spaces, wh wherever there's wildlife in the country. Right. I work directly with them yeah. through my work with Stop Ivory. Right. And then I work with the United Nations and an NGO called Space for Giants in Kenya that work on the container control program and especially focus on legislation and the criminal justice pathway and how we can help strengthen it, especially in smaller and rural jurisdictions where these crimes are taking place. And is there like, um, so if a listener is listening and yeah. like we've highlighted a few things that mm -hmm. are bad, like obviously buying deemed vintage ivory mm. or buying into the idea of taking a selfie on an mm. elephant or with like a wild animal's cub or whatever. Absolutely. These things are a small amount of the things that 
uh, the general audience can be aware of. Where can we go? Where can we encourage people to go to find out more information about these kinds of things? You know, I people ask me that a lot. And honestly, now there's so much online. If you just Google, yeah. how can I end illegal wildlife trade? How can I help illegal wildlife trade? How can I contribute to finding solutions? There's so many individual projects going on. Yeah. Supporting NGOs... And I'm not even saying this because I work for NGOs, but supporting NGOs financially is incredibly impactful. Just yeah. do the research on which NGOs you personally want to support, that you have a connection to, maybe call, reach out to them, spend a day with them, try and understand exactly what they do with the money. You can go through their books because NGOs have open books. How they spend their money is all accounted for. And donate. If you have financial capacity to donate, that is the actually the, the best way you can make a difference immediately because that is what, we're, we're, where we, what we don't have is finances to pay scouts to increase Increase their salary so that a bribe is not worth more the, to them than their own salary and their own right. livelihood. So these NGOs are, are doing great things because they're fundraising to structurally change how local communities are seeing and viewing wildlife by giving them an income and employing them and educating them. But without money, nothing runs. So I always encourage people that instead of buying three pints at the pub this weekend, Buy two and give that one five pounder a month to somebody else, to yeah, a, yeah. a really good NGO, and you'll you'll you'd be surprised how much you'd be helping. Yeah, that's yeah. really good advice. Yeah. Should we? Well, we're coming to the end of this episode. We've got one more track to play. We do have one more. Um, nice. Was, Drum roll. <laughs> yeah, this was. So this is kind of interesting. So. It's becoming evident I'm very fond of hip-hop as much as I am reggae. Nice. And so Cut Chemist is, well, he's a genius on the turntable. Do you know Cut Chemist? No, I don't. So this is going to be great. You need to investigate him. But what he's done is, actually, this is quite unusual to have a live recording of something on vinyl. Usually it doesn't get pressed up onto vinyl, especially not in today's music world. Uh -huh. This one was done in 2010. I believe in LA. But what he's got here is uh, a mix of African and South American inspired music. And it's so the, when a turntablist is making, like they use their decks as an instrument. Mm -hmm. And so they're mixing like tracks in and tracks out and so on and so forth. And so it was difficult to find a remix of that track that you chose. Oh, of course. Okay. But this is as good as a remix because it's turntableist magic and Fantastic. like the, the i've forgotten how you pronounce his name now um mulatto yes mulatto uh his track is then mixed into another track which i'm not sure what it is but it's different to the original and so therefore i thought we'll play it interesting but um interestingly Camus did another yeah it was put out onto cd i believe not vinyl but uh, it was called Addis to Adidas. Wow. Which I thought was kind of an interesting kind of play on words. But anyway, hats off to Cut Chemist. And the this album is called Sound of the Police. Well, yeah, thanks. Thanks again for coming down and getting involved. Thank you for having me. This is a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for sharing all of that amazing information. I think it leaves quite a lot of us with like downbeat emotions because it's so so incredibly sad absolutely um, i hope that the track brings everyone back up to speed exactly and if they want to know if anyone's listening wants to know more reach out to me on social media and um, you know i'm always happy to talk more about it and, and your social media handle is is at the italiopian 
reach out because she has a lot of information. Yes. <laughs> we only got into a very small bit. Absolutely. We can find solutions together. Mm-hmm. <laughs>